you're about to hear my conversation with Phil Toller. We cover a very broad selection of topics, including where he grew up, how he got started in investment management, his philosophy, style, how he thinks about industries, his take on the current market environment, and recommendations from everything from books to podcasts to where to eat. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to Bites and Insights, the podcast designed to give you insights on how our investors manage client money. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to have Phil Toller as our first guest. Phil is a lead manager of the McKenzie U.S. Midcap Growth Class and the Investment Executive Fund Manager of the Year for 2018. Phil, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Thanks. I'm looking forward to a wide-ranging conversation. So let's get started with where you grew up. Okay. I, I grew up in Montreal uh, in uh, a neighborhood called Notre Dame de Grasse, which is just to the west of downtown. Uh, some people use the initials to say no damn good, but uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but a, a pretty, uh, pretty um, sort of a middle-class Anglophone neighborhood. Uh, but luckily... My parents had the foresight to send me to a French immersion school in grade seven, little knowing that years later I would do all my presentations in French in Quebec. So uh, it's worked out well. Very good. I'll ask you to refrain from French uh, during this conversation. <laughs> we'll get try. off track. Um, I know that uh, you were accepted to the University of Waterloo and mm -hmm. uh, studied there in pure math and uh, computer science. Mm -hmm. Before you went to Waterloo, though, you mentioned a, a trip that you took. Uh, tell me a little bit about that trip and uh, what you took away from it. Yeah, so one of the nice things about uh, the Ontario universities at the time was, um, even though they still had grade 13 in Ontario, you could do one year of CGEP instead of two and still be accepted at an Ontario university. So I did, I did one year, one and a half years of CGEP and didn't finish because for the last six months I went traveling. Mm -hmm. uh, most of that time I spent in Israel uh, with some friends and um, that was a real eye-opener. I'd never really traveled too much out of the country before then and uh, it, was, it was an exciting trip. It was, it was interesting. What did you do when you were there? Uh, mostly, uh, we lived on a kibbutz, which is a communal farm uh, back then. I think a lot of them are now maybe not the way they used to be because I'm not not sure socialism actually works. So <laughs> maybe that's why. Uh, but uh, there were communal farms. People lived on them. They were part of the history of the country. And they're mostly agricultural, although some industrial. And we sort of lived and worked there as volunteers. We, when we did some studies as well, studied the language, studied culture a bit, uh, traveled around a bit, but most mostly worked on the farm. Um, uh, but it was it was it was a real eye opener. You you get there, and for a kid from Canada, which is a very peaceful place, um, you get off a plane and there's people with guns sure. standing there because that's part of what they have to do, I guess. Um, and you get used to the idea that there's a different, there's differences in the world, different places with uh, with a lot of different things going on, uh, a lot of conflict there. Sure. Uh, so it was a very interesting society. Interesting. Uh, did you take anything from that trip that you is still with you now? I think you know one of the things I think I learned is that everybody has stories they tell themselves, which are maybe or maybe not true. Uh, I think when you when you go to the Middle East, I think there's a lot of conflict. And part of it is, I think, based on the stories that people tell themselves about the other side. Uh, we did actually spend, it was arranged for us, which was great, but we did spend some time in an Arab village, mm. uh, visiting with a family there, staying with them. And um, I remember even even on the kibbutz when we were leaving, one of the younger people there saying to me, why, why would you do that? Why would you go there? Um, so there's, you know, sort of this barriers between people, uh, but also all based on perception. And I think, you know, when we got there, of course, they treated us wonderfully well. We were visitors. They were very pleasant. And, and they, you know, they explained how they felt. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think you sort of, tolerance has become a big thing thing in my mind, uh, tolerance and compassion, I think is a, is a big thing. And it, a part of it 
revolves around the idea that everybody has stories they tell themselves and they may or may not be true and you can question those and certainly in stock markets um investors tell themselves stories about certain companies that are become a narrative but may or may not be true so uh, it's always good to question question the stories great so you make your way back from israel you start at uh, the university of waterloo uh, as I said, in math and computer science. Mm -hmm. um, how did you choose uh, those subjects or what's appealing to you about that subject matter? I think I was um, reasonably good at math. So that seemed like a natural thing to do. There were lots of, even then, I think, you know, burgeoning jobs in computers. Um, Waterloo was even then considered sort of the best place in Canada to go study computer science. So that seemed like a good thing to do. Um, I, I think I partly did it because, um, I think my, you know, my parents having been through the depression were very focused on the idea that, you know, do something that gets you a job, you know, you're, you know, you're not here to make yourself happy. <laughs> you're, sure. you're, you're here to get a job. Uh, so, you know, math was something I was okay at, I think pretty good at, competent at, I'm not sure I loved it, but I, you know, it was a, a, a path to a career kind of thing. So you graduate school, uh, it's the 90s, so yeah. um, computer science is really taking off. There's yeah. all sorts of computing power that's being uh, brought online. Uh, you're in the middle of this job market. Why change and, and look at investment management? So I think I, I worked in computer software for about four years post-graduation. And uh, although I think I was good at it or competent, I guess, I wouldn't say I loved it. So it was, you know, it was okay. I was okay at it. But um, being just good at something and okay, I don't know, just didn't feel like enough. I think I was not thrilled sitting in a cubicle talking to a machine all day long. And, uh, and I was getting more and more interested in investing. Uh, the last company I worked for in the software business actually did software and data communications, mostly for financial services and, and a lot for the stock brokerage uh, industry. And so, you know, I got more and more interested in investing and uh, was sort of complaining about how I didn't love my job. And my wife finally said, hey, you know, shut up, stop complaining, do something about this. So I, I went back to school and got an MBA. Good advice. Yeah. Um, and uh, you made your way to Trimark reasonably early in your career. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me how you made it to Trimark. So um, when, I, when I graduated from York with my MBA, uh, there weren't a ton of jobs available, but I, I did eventually, after a lot of interviews that didn't go well, finally got a job in, at a small brokerage firm in Toronto called Bunting Warburg, which mm -hmm. is now part of UBS. Um, and worked there for a few years as an, as an associate to a, a few analysts, um, but realized that I probably was better suited to the buy side and um, did move to the buy side to a small firm that did private client business. But one day noticed an ad, uh, a job ad from Trimark. And, and in those days, uh, they were like the, you know, for a kid who grew up in Montreal, they were like the Habs. They're, sure. they're like the Montreal Canadians of the fund industry at that time. It was the place to be. And so I wrote uh, a letter to uh, Dina DeGeer, actually, who was mm. the person advertising for her team. And um, she, I guess she liked my letter because she called me in and I met her and I met Bob Kremble and uh, they decided to hire me. And I really did feel like I had made it to the big leagues at that point because that was a great place to be. Absolutely. If you look at the investors that came out of Trimark around that period, uh, you've mentioned some of them with Dina and Kremble, but you mm -hmm. also had Bill Kanko, you had the Edgepoint guys, mm -hmm. uh, Darren McKiernan a little bit later. What was in the water at Trimark that allowed so many investors to be successful? Um, I think it's a you know it's a style that works. I think maybe you know maybe for the last decade or so, growth at a reasonable price, mm -hmm. if you want to call it that, has been a style that's worked pretty well. Um, I think, you know, Tri Trimark attracted great, good people mm -hmm. uh, because I think it was the place to be. So I think, you know, people want to be at the, the place that's winning. So you, you attract a lot of good people. Uh, and it was a pretty competitive place too. So uh, that has its ups and downs, but 
competition, I think, breeds, you know, maybe some some good stuff too at times. Uh, so yeah, a lot of a lot of good things came out of that culture. Sure. And you mentioned your investment style or the Trimark investment style growth at a reasonable price. Is that how you'd characterize your style today? I think pretty much. You know, okay. we're we're always looking for a company that can grow. Uh, faster than the economy, let's say, but we we do care about valuation. So we're you know we're trying to look at both sides of the coin. It's it's often been true, I think, that when growth investors have kind of gone gone off the rails, it's usually begin because they lose sight of the price they're paying for the growth they're getting, and and that can work for a while, but eventually, you know that that ends in tears, right? Ultimately, and did that uh, style take root at Trimark or was it something that you developed throughout your career? I think that, um, I think that helped a lot. I crystallized what I do. Uh, I I think I started out as many people do reading some of the, um, Benjamin Graham stuff, the intelligent investor. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I think when I first started investing personally, I think I would say value seemed to make a lot of sense to me mm-hmm. being a value investor. And then um, over time, I think I realized it became a little more nuanced in that, you know, a growth company can be a wonderful thing to own if you don't overpay. So there's, you know, there's an element of valuation there, but I think, you know, you look at a guy like Warren Buffett, I think he started the same way, very sure. strong value guy, studied with Ben Graham, mm-hmm. but then over time realized that just cheap may not be the best way to go. Uh, a decent price plus growth can be a wonderful place to invest. So you leave Trimark um, and you join Blue Water mm-hmm. uh, with Dina DeGear. Uh, and in late 2002, you launched the U.S. mid-cap growth uh, strategy that you yeah. currently uh, manage. Yeah. Why did you choose U.S. mid-caps? What is it about that segment of the market that's appealing? So I'd been working on U.S. equities for quite a few years by then. Uh, we did uh, at Trimark. In in our Canadian funds, we would max out the allowed foreign content. In those days, RSPs had a 30% max foreign content. So even the Canadian funds had 30% foreign. And as we looked around the world, looked for what to do, we have often ended up in the US because those are companies you can understand, the language, the culture, they're approachable. Plus, uh, we found over the years that going back to the to the market all the time, looking for new ideas, it seemed like the mid caps were where we ended up. I think it's maybe a sweet spot, perhaps between small and large. It's um, you know small caps have can be exciting, lots of growth, but many of them are not mature business models. There's the history is harder to to study, uh, and some of them do sort of fail over time. Um, and then maybe large caps are highly picked over. Uh, they're great companies because mm-hmm. you have to do something pretty great to be a large cap. But perhaps they're very well followed. And there's a lot of mid caps that you know uh, you know have analysts covering them, have people looking at them. But generally speaking, maybe a little less picked over. Maybe that's part of it too. Uh, but they also have mature business models. They've been around a long time. Right. They are often uh, and you know, mid cap these days is two billion plus. Could, sure, could be ten, twenty billion. So they're they're not tiny companies. So they're often, even though they're not household names, they're leaders in their niches. And we've found that over many years, you can find in mid caps companies that truly are number one in a, a sub industry. Uh, nobody's necessarily heard of them sure. too much, but <laughs> but in their world, they really are the dominant people. Right. Um, so for whatever reason, that seems to have been the sweet spot for many years. Even before launching this fund, mid-caps were the place we found most of our ideas. Yeah, it's a little unintuitive. You'd figure just based on uh, financial theory that small caps would generally yield a better return over time. Uh, but happens not to be the case often with mid-caps uh, very frequently outperforming small caps. So yeah, um, interesting sp- sweet spot. Industry selection is something that I know is pretty integral to your process. You spend a lot of time thinking about industries and sub-industries. How do you approach that? Um, there's so much out there to, mm-hmm. to look at and so many things are changing. So what's important to you? 
Well, top of the page is growth. So we do, uh, because we're looking for companies that can grow faster than the economy, uh, it does mean we tend to look within growth sectors generally mm -hmm. over time. That is usually things like technology, healthcare, industrials, some consumer. It is often not very much staples, uh, very little in the way of telecoms, utilities, or resources. Mm -hmm. um, but beyond that uh, as well, there are subsectors. And often what we are trying to do beyond just the company, which is where we focus most of our time, is we think about the bigger picture. So what are the macro risks that the fund faces, whether it's uh, positive or negative? And there are different subsectors you might want to be in, given where you think the market is less or more optimistic and where you think the cycle might be. So for example, in 2011, with the crisis fresh in people's heads, mm -hmm. there was a lot of pessimism about the world. I think people were very afraid of taking on cyclical risk about volatility. Um, so we added to some very good companies, but in subsectors like regional banking and semiconductors and technology hardware, because those were areas that were unloved with some really good companies there, but you could add those and take on a little more cyclical exposure, uh, be a little more aggressive about risk in a world where people were uh, very scared about taking on any risk. So that was sort of a, a positive risk that we took advantage of. Um, more recently in the last couple of years, we've decided that the coin has sort of flipped a bit in that there was a lot more optimism about the economy. Right. Uh, interest rates are going up and the risk in our view was rising at least that uh, higher rates would slow an economy down mm -hmm. and you might get some cyclical weakness. <clears throat> so we've changed some of the subsectors in the fund to do that. So still always looking for good companies and you know high quality and good valuations. You can also think about where you want to skew the portfolio in terms of overall risk. So we took out a lot of our regional bank exposure, semiconductors, tech hardware, industrial cyclicals, and we've added a lot more healthcare, uh, less cyclical technology like software and services, outsourcing services, consulting, um, which are, again, you know, really good businesses, but different cyclical exposure. So, gotcha. so that's how we've changed the um, the overall positioning of the fund. Interesting. Um, sticking a little bit on company specific, um, where you said that you spend most of your time uh, looking for uh, specific attributes of, of uh, different companies. Why don't you walk us through what you look for in a company, uh, why it's appealing and, and how to identify it? Sure. So we're um, top of the page is growth. And we're looking for a company that can grow faster than its industry. Um, and we always say can grow because there are times when a business may not be growing all that fast, but we think sometimes those are temporary. For example, when we bought Progressive Insurance uh, I don't know, five years ago, its growth rate had slowed a lot. Uh, we felt that was temporary because of, you know, a few factors that were affecting that, but we thought, you know, 3% growth wasn't great, but it, that they could easily get back to, you know, five, six, seven, and they could lead their industry. Um, how, how do you make that distinction when you're looking at a company that says, ha, say, has had disappointing yeah. growth, and you say, this is a company that we actually think can return to growth versus maybe the company never returns to, to the mm -hmm. growth that you're looking for? Like, how do you, um, how do you uh, make that uh, decision? So we spend a lot of time thinking about the business. Uh, we do, you know, read the reports. We talk to the corporate management team um, and we talk to Wall Street as well. Mm -hmm. But we do try to speak to people in the industry. Uh, so we, we do like at times to try to glean stuff from people who are not corporate management and not Wall Street because those two groups are conflicted. So to get a better picture of the truth, which you never totally know. Uh, but to get a little better picture, we talk to customers, suppliers, competitors, ex-employees, industry experts. Uh, you get a more well-rounded 
view of a business doing that. Management doesn't have only the optimistic viewpoint. <laughs> surprising to hear. Well, one, <laughs> one thing I think I've learned uh, as an amateur psychologist is, is human beings put their best foot forward. Sure. So I always use this analogy, you know, you and I meet in the street and you ask me, Phil, how's it going? My answer will almost always be fine. Uh, it's not fine. You know, we all have problems. Stuff's going wrong. Sure. Uh, so it's not fine, but I say fine. Uh, and, you know, that's how human beings are. That's how, you know, corporations are. Nobody leads with their problems. Mm -hmm. uh, and every company has problems. Our thesis is that um, if, if, you, if a company doesn't seem to have any problems, you just don't know what they are. So we're not afraid of problems. That's part of life. Uh, and, and then the question is, does the company's, do the company's problems look fixable? Are, are they temporary or permanent? I mean, that's often the key question. And so for, you know, a company like Progressive, when you look at their business, you see that historically they've been wonderful leaders in technology in their in, in industry of insurance. They really are a technology company. They're a data analytics company. Right. They are the best in the industry at um, using and analyzing data. Even uh, amazingly, at, at the last Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting, uh, they gave a nod to Progressive as being the best. Hmm. Even though they own Geico, sure, who are number two, maybe, right? Uh, and and both those companies are leading the industry, but they kind of wow. not, nodded their heads to Progressive as really leaders in technology. So, uh, if you know that and you know that they're great at that. Uh, insurance, that's what insurance is, really. It's statistical analysis. Right. And if you're better at it, you win because the risks end up, the bad card ends up in the other guy's hand, basically. You're playing you know, poker with people, except that you can see more of what's in other people's hands than they can right. see in yours. And that's uh, it's a great advantage to have. So knowing that and believing that that advantage is still there, you know, in, in a rising economy where we felt like, you know, car sales are going to pick up. Sure. Uh, sure. You know, the, at that time, car sales were pretty beat up, but you're going to have a lot more new cars, more insurance premiums to write, great business, great leaders in technology. They should make a pretty good comeback. I want to circle back to um, some of the comments that you made about expert networks and, mm -hmm. and talking to customers and uh, and suppliers and 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 all of that. Um, how does that, how do you incorporate that within the process? Is it only to understand if companies are are likely to return to growth, or do you use it in other ways as well? Uh, it's also you know we'll we'll have questions that come up. Every company we own, even even after we've done due diligence, questions always come up. Sure. There's a new competitor. <clears throat> there's a new product or service that the company's trying to launch. Uh, there's an issue that's come up. You want to try and figure that out. And often we'll do calls on companies we already own to try and decide you know, what's going on, either support the thesis or, or break it. Uh, so we'll do things like that too. Great. And when you're doing your work on the individual companies, how do you determine what price the company is actually worth? So uh, one of the reasons I think I'm in this industry is uh, is a course I took on corporate financial analysis at York University when I was doing my MBA. Hmm. And the prof on that course, who was a very, a very iconoclastic guy, you would not have pictured him as a business prof because he, you know, he sort of wore Birkenstocks and rode a bike <laughs> to, to class kind of thing. Uh, but he loved finding the stuff hidden in the numbers. And the way he taught us to do it was in discounted cash flow modeling, mm. which is a, a much more labor-intensive form of valuation than just applying a PE multiple to things. But uh, to my mind, very interesting. So our projects for him were all based on that. And I remember sitting in my apartment uh, doing one of these discounted cash flow models. And this probably sounds really geeky and bizarre, but uh, I remember saying to myself, geez, if someone would pay me to do this, I love this. This is fun. Uh, it's probably some of my math, you know, background sure. coming yeah. back. Uh, but I said, you know, this is really interesting stuff because you get into the business, you get into the numbers. Uh, so that model that I really kind of developed there, 
you know, 25 plus years later, I'm still using that, that model. All right. And that's what we do is we look at annual reports on our companies and we build the, the models manually, which is certainly not necessary in a modern world, but uh, we do it anyway. We type the numbers ourselves to learn. You go through the annuals, you type the numbers, you read the reports, and it gives you- This a, is as opposed to just getting a download from a yeah. Bloomberg or something like that? Yeah, yeah you, could, you could go get the data automatically. Huh. There's, there's no need to do this. Um, in, in 2019, you know, it's, it's not necessary, but perhaps very useful. Okay. Because uh, it teaches you a lot. It takes, you know, it's labor intensive. It takes, I don't know, week, two weeks, uh, maybe more. Um, but at the end of that time, you understand the business better than a lot of people outside the company. Because uh, a lot of people just, you know, can't be bothered or will not do that because, you know, it seems too tedious or it's too much work or they own 200 companies and they're fine. Sure. They're, they're not going to do that stuff. Interesting. Um, given your background in computer science and math, uh, one would expect a, a sort of a quant outlook on markets or quantitative um, portfolio management techniques to be incorporated within your portfolio. You've been talking a lot about fundamental. Do you use quant uh, models at all? Not really. Uh, you know, we do see on a regular basis what our exposures are to certain factors, and you know, we kind of find that interesting to look at, look at what our risk exposures are. Mm. <clears throat> but I think what we do um, is not captured by a quant model. It's um, at least part of what we do is idiosyncratic risk sure. in each company that you can't really capture quantitatively. Uh, so I have a healthy belief that, you know, numbers can teach you a lot and quant can be interesting, but there's something beyond that in studying the companies that is cannot be captured in in a quantitative model. Hmm. You uh, you lead a team of a total of three of you. How do you uh, be a good leader to the analysts and uh, associate PMs on your team? And how did you think about constructing that team in general? Um, I think you want, um, you know, I, I follow the the model that I've learned over the years is a very flat structure. We're, we're a small team, so this works well. But basically, everybody is self-directed. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think if, if I lead at all, perhaps it's by example. I mean, I try to just, you know, keep doing the process I've done for many years and work that process. Keep looking at companies, finish looking at one, go on to the next, keep that intensity up. So you don't outsource the manual inputting of uh, data into your discount on cash flow. You're doing that alongside of everybody else. I do not ask anybody to do anything I don't do myself. Uh -huh. So we're all doing the same work um, and we all uh, pursue ideas that we choose. I think people like having control of their own work. So I think it's good, you know, the uh, people who are um, intelligent and, and, you know, hardworking, they want to choose what company they work on. So they're free reign to go look at stuff. I do the same. And um, and you want people who don't have big egos. Sure. Uh, you know, we don't want a lot of ton of drama or anything like that. But, you know, you want, I think humility does um, play a big role in investing. Uh, thinking that you know too much is usually a disaster. Mm -hmm. uh, so you want to be, you know, humble about how much you probably don't know. Uh, and, you know, we, we um, challenge each other's work somewhat without being disrespectful. I think that's, you know, that's a positive thing. And you need, there's personalities that would fit that and there's personalities that wouldn't. So I really, sure. I've tried to pick people that I think, you know, fit that model. Great. One thing that I've been um, coming a, across recently is a lot of academic literature that's showing investment managers that en masse do a reasonably good job buying securities, mm. uh, but they actually detract a lot of value when selling securities. Mm. Tell me how you think about when to sell a security and uh, what that process looks like. Most of it, thankfully, is valuation. So our, our dream is we buy something and it goes up mm -hmm. <laughs> a lot, hopefully. Uh, so, so we have this model. We have a discounted cash flow model that has a, a target, a fair value of the business, theoretically, of X. 
And when the price of a stock gets above X, you know, we start trimming. We trim at 10% over and 15 and 20 and 25. Every level that you get to above the model, we trim more. Okay. And then there's some level of, you know, 25 to 30% above the model when it just goes to zero. And unless we can convince ourselves that there's the model is way off and it's going to be way better or something, then we just, we do it, even though you may love the business. So I think that's part of the problem for a lot of investors is when a company's doing well, you know, it, it may have turned itself around, it's doing well, the stock price is doing well, you love it. Sure. It makes you feel good. Everybody likes it. How do you know, you don't want to get off that train. So I think the model helps us keep that discipline. Even though you love the business, you have a valuation process that we think has worked over many years. We trim those things and we go buy the stuff that people don't like. And right. That seems to work out over time. Great. What are you most optimistic and pessimistic about today? Um, I'm still very optimistic about uh, about our companies. And, you know, um, we think there's a lot of great businesses in the U.S. Mm -hmm. I'm still optimistic about the U.S. in the world as an economic model. Okay. Uh, despite all its problems and, you know, leadership issues, that kind of thing, uh, the U.S. is a, is an interesting, unique culture. Um, we just had the July 4th uh, holiday, so I'll, I'll be a little uh, stars and stripes on you. But I think basically, and I've said this many years ago, and I'll say it again, is this is, one, is perhaps the only country in the world founded on an idea. So the... Many other countries exist because of geography or tribal mm -hmm. or ethnic backgrounds. That's often what has happened. Uh, the U.S. is a company, a country actually founded on an idea, basically centering around freedom. And um, that cultural heritage results in a great economic model relative to a lot of others. So you, you have uh, an entrepreneurial business culture. Because, you know, the people who have immigrated to the U.S. over the years self-select as right. people who have the courage to go do that. So there's, there's an entrepreneurial culture. Uh, property rights is a big deal. The rule of law actually applies, essentially. Um, and therefore, you have one of the biggest finance industries in the world. There's venture capital there. Uh, there are the greatest universities still in the world. Mm -hmm. Despite its ed educational problems, the universities create great ideas. The venture capital firms will fund them. Those become eventually perhaps small caps who become the farm team for mid caps. So that's, I think I'm optimistic about that, that pipeline of businesses and companies the U.S. still generates, which is head and shoulders above everywhere else. How much of your time do you spend looking at the farm team, looking at small cap companies uh, in anticipation that they may become mid caps? Uh, we see a lot of them. We we go to conferences throughout the year, mm -hmm. and a lot of the ones we go to are sort of mostly small and mid. Uh, so we will see companies that may be smaller, and we sort of keep an eye on them. We have you know lists of businesses we're following, and um, so we we get exposure to these businesses a lot, and we'll just we keep an eye on them. Um, so there's they they percolate, okay, and we do see them. Great. Thanks for your insights, Phil. We're now going to turn to the bite segment of the podcast where we look for your take on the current market conditions. Just to let everybody know, today is July 8th. Uh, the S&P 500 opened today at 2,990. Uh, Russell 2,500, which is more applicable to you, Phil, at uh, 642. Uh, both indices are at or uh, very near record highs. Mm -hmm. How much longer can this go on? Uh, you never know. So markets do what they do. Mostly what we do is work our process mm -hmm. and buy the things we think are reasonably valued and the markets will do what they do. Uh, I do think we are economically probably living through um, the period we kind of expected, which was a period of weakness economically based on uh, interest rate increases. So, you know, the 10-year treasury in the U.S., bottomed in June of 16. So we've, you know, with a lag, higher rates tend to do this. 
we are living through the digestion of those rate increases that happened a while back. And we've got to get through this period of economic weakness. That could slow markets down. You never know. Uh, there's a lot of uh, expectation that this second quarter earnings releases that are coming up will not be great. Okay. So that could maybe put a hole in the, in the balloon a bit, who knows. Uh, but we do have to live through this period of weakness. You did speak about interest rates uh, bottoming. Mm -hmm. There is – markets are at least pricing in one more cut mm -hmm. uh, from the Fed, maybe one and a half, two, depending on uh, the day. Uh, how much will that impact your companies and how closely do you monitor interest rates? Um, not not incredibly closely. We, we don't own a ton of banks. We own a little bit of that, so that would not – rate cuts are usually not great for banks, but um, – most of the businesses we have focused on more in the last two years have been less cyclical. So they are, by and large, less exposed to, um, to, the, to, the, to GDP and to cyclicality. Right. Uh, even if there's a rate cut now in an attempt to make the economy better, uh, typically the lag for interest rate effects is 18 months. I see. So... At, at some time, rates will go down. I don't know when, but uh, those take action down the road. So there's, you know, there's still a lag. The headlines uh, all year have been about the trade war between China and the U.S., and mm -hmm. certainly there's been tariffs been put on on both sides of mm -hmm. the border. How insulated is your fund? People view your fund and domestic uh, mid U.S. mid-cap companies as being less impacted by tariffs. Is that true? And how are you positioning your fund in light of that? I think to some extent that's true. You know, a, a property and casualty insurance company like Progressive that does all, does all its business in the U.S. isn't buying anything or selling any, anything to China. And we have a lot of businesses like that. Uh, but we do have some exposure. We own some apparel companies like Carter's, mm. for example, that does babies and kids clothes, um, in which there is no tariff yet, but there could be. It's been threatened. Sure. So far, it hasn't come into place. But that's a you know it's a possible impact. Um, but for example, a Carter's a three pack of onesies from Carter's that's eight dollars uh, with the tariffs that are proposed, but not yet implemented. Uh, the price of that might go up 20 cents right. is the idea. So, you know, at the margin, would there be less sales? Yeah, probably. But we've thought about that and said, you know, we think it's already in the stock price and we have a reasonable valuation. So we, we do have some exposures to that kind of stuff. Okay. Not not a ton, but there there is some. The, the broader exposure is um, a trade war doesn't help the economy necessarily. Sure. So possibly if the GDP gets worse overall, it doesn't help anybody really. Um, so nobody's totally immune. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, and uh, about a year ago, I think around this time, you were speaking about reducing the beta within your uh, fund. Mm -hmm. Can you, and in retrospect, it was an excellent uh, decision. I'm, I'm looking at your one year number at the end of June. Uh, and you're at 15.1%. That's against the index, uh, the Russell 2500 at 1.4%. So uh, really strong outperformance over the past year. I'm assuming uh, a lot of that has to do with the beta reduction and going through Q4. But correct me if I'm wrong on that. And, and can you let us know where the beta of your fund is right now? Yeah, it's still fairly low. So we've, we've tried to, although we're tempted at times to get more cyclical because those stocks are really beat up. So mm -hmm. there, there will be a time to buy them, but we have not really done so yet. So the beta stays pretty low. Uh, we think what paid off last year in a big way was um, in part being in the right sectors. So we, we did try to get out of a lot of cyclicality and we entered 18 with a lot of technology and a lot of healthcare. And those are the places the market uh, were, was drawn to. As the economic figures got worse, mm -hmm. uh, people moved more and more into the growth sectors because the, the thesis at the start of 18 was that things were going to be really good and you should buy cyclicals. And that lost a lot of air as the year went on and the economy got worse. So we just... 
we were positioned the right way as luck would have it. So it's good. Speaking of sectors and, and healthcare where you have a significant overweight and, mm-hmm. and traditionally have large exposure to healthcare, right now in the US on the Democratic uh, nominations for president, there are, I would say, probably the majority of candidates that are calling for really fundamental reforms to US healthcare, mm-hmm. single payer or, or some other type of scheme. Yep. How do you incorporate um, risks like that within your, within your um, analysis? So it, it's been part of our thesis in healthcare that there will be price pressures on the system, no matter who's in the White House. And that is because um, even consumers who are covered by corporate plans in the last decade have been pushed more and more to high deductible healthcare plans. So many families today pay deductibles of three, four, five thousand dollars before their corporate plan kicks in, whereas years ago they paid next to nothing, Mm. which means that consumers and voters now care about the cost of healthcare much more than they ever did before. Uh, Governments care as well because an increasing population is moving into U.S. Medicare as they age, and that is costing a lot of money. So there's a bunch of people who pay for healthcare who care more about price than they ever have. So we think there's there'll be price pressure no matter Democrat, Republican, um, that system is under pressure. So what we've tried to do in healthcare is be involved in companies that are um, can deal with that or okay. maybe maybe even help with that. We've owned several companies over the last several years who are involved in healthcare technology. Give us an example. Software. Um, one that we have since sold, but you know, we owned HMS Holdings up until last year for, for a good uh, five years or so. Um, and HMS is a data analytics company that helps find fraud, waste, and abuse, among other things, in the healthcare system. So if you're trying to save money, um, it's a healthcare stock that you would go, you'd be interested in because the system wants to, to get more efficient. That, that would be a product you would go to. So that's an example of what I'm talking about. So we, we've tried, we still own uh, a couple of other names that we think are involved in that, making the system more efficient, hopefully. Um, the other area we are involved in is drug supply chain. So not the drug companies. And we do think drug prices will be, in one form or another, be under pressure. But if you're going to have a drug industry um, and you want to be more efficient at it, you can outsource maybe even more than you do today to clinical research organizations who do your trials for you. Uh, we own a company who can uh, manufacture the ingredients or the drugs hmm. for you, pills. Uh, we have companies who can help sell and market your drug if you don't want to do it yourself, you want to do it more efficiently. Um, so we have a raft of companies involved in drug supply chain who could help drug companies maybe save money if they were under pressure. So even with uh, potential changes, you've uh, selected businesses that are likely to benefit regardless of the outlook for the healthcare as a whole? Yeah, I think um, there will be a lot of rhetoric against healthcare in the coming year because we're going into the election year. Mm -hmm. So the sector may act strangely. So I'm not saying these stocks are going to do great. Who knows? Uh, but we think the companies actually will be fine um, as long you know as long as there is a drug industry still existing at the end of all this, which we think is a pretty good bet. Sure, um, they should do okay. Perfect. Um, another sector that you're very fond of and, and traditionally you're overweight is technology. Uh, Q4 uh, last year, we saw the largest tech names really lead the retreat. If you look at the Facebook or Google, uh, Amazons. How did your technology companies do in uh, the sell-off last year, and how are you currently positioned within that sector? Uh, they did relatively well. Um, any technology that we owned last year that got more and more popular as the year went on into Q3, we probably sold or trimmed. So because our, our valuation models, I think, helped us out on that. Mm-hmm. So that helped. Selling what's overpriced, even though it's great in its growth, when it's overpriced, it's overpriced. So that helped us a lot. Uh, the other thing is some of our technology names are not exciting. 
So, you know, some of them are, they're technology, but they're not the most uh, admired businesses. Give, give us an example. You know, for example, we own a company called Maximus in the U.S. Um, and they do uh, technology in a, a very broadly defined way for governments in the U.S. They might run, say, a call center for a Medicaid program in a state. Oh, okay. And there is some technology involved in that. There's also some pretty basic functionality there. Uh, it's called a tech company, and we think they have some technology, but it's, you know, I won't call it exciting. Sure. But um, probably social programs aren't going away, and if you're trying to save money, you outsource it to someone like Maximus. Um, you know, it's not very cyclical. It's not going away. It's not the most exciting growth in the world, but it's... You know, it's a pretty solid, decent business. And, uh, you know, it's one example of what we own in technology that may not be exciting, but holds up pretty well in a tough market. Thanks, Phil. Really appreciate you spending some time on the, the market environment. I just want to conclude the podcast uh, by getting a series of recommendations from you. Okay. Um, what are some of your favorite books, investment-related, nonfiction, fiction, whatever you'd like? Um, I think in the last year, I've, I've read some really great biographies for whatever. I've been on a bit of a kick. I don't right. always do this, but uh, I like history and I do like reading uh, histories, but I've last year I've done a lot of biographies. Uh, Ron Chernow's biography of Grant, okay, Ulysses S. Grant, yeah, sure. was really interesting because he is, again, going back to perceptions. I think he's perceived a certain way and uh, truly interesting, modest military genius, but uh, certain negative perceptions around the man might be a little exaggerated. So right. Great, really great, great book. Uh, you you have to slog through 800 pages, I think, to do it. But okay. uh, same thing, um, there was a biography of um, John D. Rockefeller, which was very interesting, just getting uh, insight into how the business world functioned many sure. years ago. Uh, really interesting stuff, uh, stuff like that. Also um, did a history book uh, about uh, General George Marshall and his work in China post-World War II. Uh, mm. The genius of D-Day became a bit of a failure in a way on his project to try and bring peace to China, but just an interesting, you know, historical kind of retrospective on that. So interesting Great. stuff. I'll have to look some of those up. Yeah. How about uh, investment related? Anything particularly to the field that enhanced your craft? Uh, I just did read, um, which I think is kind of related, uh, Tom Peters' new book he he years ago he did in search of excellence okay which everybody loves from the 80s i think because it uh, talked a lot about you know what made companies great but he he has a, a new book um it's called the excellence dividend okay. and he talks about excellence and what it is to be a leader in a business and uh what are the key attributes and Really, really interesting book. A real eye opener. Very easy to read because it's like written in little blurbs. Okay, uh, but but pretty cool book. Really, uh, really neat to go through. Very, it's a very quick read. Great. How about some podcasts? What are your favorite podcasts? Um, I do like um, Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz. The Bloomberg pop podcast that he does is very interesting. There's lots of in depth interviews with people in business and in the investing world. Um, Economics of Liberty. Econ Talk uh, is is a great uh, podcast that looks at various books about economics or industry structures. Um, and then we do some industry stuff. I, I do uh, try to get into the weeds a bit on certain industries. So, for example, there's a podcast called Twiet, which is This Week in Enterprise Technology. Okay. It's very geeky, uh, and you don't always understand what they're talking about necessarily, <laughs> but you get insight into what people in enterprise technology are thinking about in terms of products and what they're looking for. So I do stuff like that on technology, uh, healthcare. Uh, there's uh, some pharmaceutical research podcasts, uh, Aviation Week on aviation, those kinds of things. If you're in an industry and you're invested in it, there's a podcast for every industry sure. that you could be in. So stuff like that too. Great. Uh, you do a lot of marketing across Canada. What's your favorite place to eat? Uh, you know, last year, uh, one of the great things we were able to do was, uh, given our success, I took our the three of us, I took my team to um, a restaurant very close to here called Allo. Mm. It's at, right on Queen here. And it's a, it's fantastic. It's an amazing experience. It was probably the best food 
I've eaten in a long time. So I thought being great. from Montreal, you would head that way. But uh, well, you know, it's just down the road. And I've now, been in, been in Toronto a long time. So. I see. Are you still a Habs fan? Kind of. Oh, that's going to cause uh, some disruption. I think in Montreal, <laughs> you might not be. be you might not be invited back. Could kind be. of. I don't yeah, know. Could be. Um, and uh, it's uh, beginning of July in Canada, which means that everybody's about to go on vacation. Yeah. What's your favorite place to vacation? Hmm. Uh, last year was great. Um, my daughter and I do a trip every August. We sort of try and go away, uh, just the two of us. And last year we went to Cape Cod for a week or so. And that was fantastic. I'd never been there. Uh, I, I made the mistake of landing on a long weekend and trying to drive there <laughs> from, sure. from Logan Airport, which was kind of stupid. But once we got there, it was amazing, beautiful. I really, really loved it. It was kind of sort of laid back, beaches, sunshine. We loved it. Phil, thanks so much for being so generous with your time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to the first Bites and Insights. Please hit subscribe to stay up to date and join us for our next podcast, which will feature Darren McKiernan, lead portfolio manager of the McKenzie Dividend Fund. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses all may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. Mutual funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Performance of the McKenzie U.S. Mid-Cap Growth Class Series F as of the end of June 2019. One year, 15.1%. Three year, 17.7%. Five year, 15.4%. 10 year, 15.5%.